0: There's a lot of things up here. Let me get cleaned up. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. Everybody hear me okay? Amen. Hebrews chapter 4. That's where we're going to be tonight. Um, I had something to say for, for when you were uh, turning to turn into Hebrews chapter 4. Um, and it it actually I mean it's something I've kind of been reflecting on from something I've preached a few, several weeks back now probably a couple of months ago but um, just thinking about uh, that line in the, the the song before the last one there's a line in the first verse that says um, something to the effect you've delivered me from all fear um, and I've, I've just been that has just been coming back to me again and again from Hebrews chapter 2 which I preached on a couple of months ago now and um, how Christ has conquered, the power, has, has conquered death by his death on the cross for us. He's conquered death. And so uh, by his death, he's able to deliver us, deliver those who through fear of death were subject all their life long to slavery. Christ delivers us from the fear of death. And it makes me, makes me think of the, the famous Gettys hymn, In Christ Alone, which we, which we sing all the time. And that that verse, I, I believe it's the last verse that begins, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Now, the next line tells you why that is. Is it the power of self-esteem in me that gives me no guilt in life and no fear in death? Is it the power of positive thinking in me? No, what is it? This is the power of Christ in me. That's why I don't have to fear death, because of the power of Christ. And that's just been on my heart lately, coming back to my mind again and again, so I thought that I would share it to you as you were turning to Hebrews chapter 4, which hopefully by now you've made it there. So if you have, I would ask you to stand to your feet in honor of reading God's Word. And we will read the first 11 verses of chapter 4. These are the words of God. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest." although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today. After so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, that is Joshua, as we're going to see, if Jesus uh, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you for this time that we have regularly to meet together on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, to gather together with your people and hear your word preached and to uh, fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Father, it's such a blessing to be able to come into this house and be encouraged by each other and to, be, to have our faith strengthened, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It is such a blessing. So I pray now, Father, that you would uh, anoint me, that you would give me clarity of speech as I declare your word and share the things that you've laid on my heart. And Father, give us all uh, listening ears and open our hearts to receive the truth of your word. This night is all about you, and this time that we have here in your word is all about you. So make yourself known, and and show us your will for us, and show us the meaning of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. (laughs) Have you ever heard of the word perspicuity? Perspicuity. I would venture to guess that, that that most people are probably not familiar with that, with that word. It's not really a common word. We don't use it very often anymore, and it kind of sounds a little bit funny, doesn't it? Perspicuity. Uh, but what, what does it mean? Well, it actually, it's just a word that means clarity. Perspicuity means clarity. You've heard of the probably the related word perspicuous, which just means clear. Um, but perspicuity means clarity, and it's a word that, that theologians a long time ago would, would apply to the Bible. It's, it's, a, it's a way that they would describe Scripture, and uh, so they would talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, by which they meant the clarity of Scripture. But ironically, over time, it, it's funny that the word pers, perspicuity, uh, it, it, it eventually became less and less clear what that word means. So eventually they just switched to talking about the clarity of Scripture, and that just means that we believe God's Word is understandable. We can understand what God has said to us in His Word, otherwise there wouldn't be much use in reading or studying Scripture. Uh, So the clarity of Scripture means that God has spoken, and He's spoken clearly. It doesn't mean that we will understand everything necessarily, uh, but But in terms of what God has said to us in his word, uh, we can understand that. But what it it does not mean, what the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture does not mean, is that everything is going to be equally clear. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is going to be easy to understand. In fact, I can think of a place uh, at the end of 2 Peter where Peter uh, is talking about Paul's letters. And he says there that there are some things that Paul has written that are hard to understand. Even Peter himself said that about some things that were in Paul's letter. So there are some things that that are hard to understand in Scripture, and so we have to work at it. We have to pay close attention to the things that we read and ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we read Scripture. Now, my whole point in sharing all of that with you was to say that I think that what we have before us here tonight and this passage that we've just read is one of those places that I think are hard to understand. So I just want to be honest with you out of the gate about that. I think this is a difficult text. It's not an easy passage, at least to me uh, it's not. And it, cer- it certainly won't be the last difficult passage that we, that we bump into, into this, in, in, in this book of Hebrews as we, as we move through it. There, there are going to be others too. And even in modern translations, like the, like the NIV, those will at least make the words a little bit more clear and the statements that he makes a little bit more clear. But even then, it can be really difficult to understand the logic that he's using, to understand how he puts one statement together with another. How does this idea lead him into this idea? And how does he conclude this from that? Uh, so it's a, it's a tricky passage, and so just kind of let that be a challenge to you tonight, to... to Pay uh, close attention, um, and and I'm going to do my best to explain it as I as I understand it. And uh, but hopefully, uh, just as you read, you can pray that the Holy Spirit would open open up the, the meaning of this passage to all of us here tonight. Because I think it's a I think it's a powerful message that it has that it has to give us. So just let that be uh, a challenge to you as we dive in here. Let's look at verse one. Verse 1 says this of chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, I think it'd be good to back up and look at the context of this passage, going back into chapter 3, the last time I spoke, a few weeks ago now, I think. Um, Back in chapter 3, in the last half of chapter 3, uh, what the writer did was he quoted a part of Psalm ninety five, and if you go ahead and look back at at chapter three with me, uh, verse seven of chapter three, uh, let's go ahead and read that read that passage again. I think it, I think it'll be good for us to go over it again because in chapter four he's going to keep he's going to keep on referring back to Psalm ninety five, and he's going to be reasoning from it and drawing conclusions from it. So let's back in chapter three and starting in verse seven. This is this is the passage from Psalm ninety five. Uh, So then after the writer quoted that passage from Psalm 95, he went on to talk about how we need to be uh, exhorting one another and encouraging one another every day while it's called today so that we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, Because there were people in in Old Testament Israel that God said would not enter into his rest. And so now, in that light, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, "...let us therefore..." Fear. Let us be on our guard. Let us be on our guard. Let us take great care so that we don't come short of God's rest. He's drawing a lesson from Old Testament Israel and applying it to his day, to his readers, and ultimately to us. So look at verse two now. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. Did you know that Old Testament Israel had the gospel preached to them? That's an interesting idea, is They had the gospel preached to them. They heard the good news preached. They heard the good news that God is gracious and merciful and that God is slow to anger and God is abounding in steadfast love and God is a God who forgives sins. All of that is really good news that they heard. Old Testament Israel heard at least that much of the gospel. Now, certainly they didn't hear the entirety of the gospel message. They wouldn't have known the name of Jesus. They wouldn't have have heard the full message of the gospel that we have revealed to us in the New Testament. But they knew the good news that God forgives sins and, and specifically that God gives rest to those who put their trust in him. But what did that good news do for the people who didn't believe it? Who didn't accept it? Who didn't submit to it? What good did it do them? The writer's going to tell us very clearly in the rest of verse 2. But the word preached did not profit them. And why didn't it profit them? Because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. They didn't believe the message. Their hearts were hard to the message. And so the gospel message that they heard didn't do them any good. It's not that the message itself was faulty or powerless in itself. But the the message wasn't accepted because of the people's hard hearts. They were hard to it, and so it didn't do them any good. There are people who can hear the gospel preached a thousand times throughout the course of their life. But if it never results in a response of faith and repentance, it does not do them any good. In fact, all it's really going to do is make them more accountable. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent the disciples out to go and preach the gospel um, from town to town. And he said, if anybody does not accept your message, he said, shake the dust off your feet and leave that as you as you leave that town. And he said this, the day of judgment will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those people. Wow. Sodom and Gomorrah are like the prototypical wicked cities of the Old Testament. And Jesus says that those who reject the gospel message the judgment day will be more severe for them than even Sodom and Gomorrah. That's that's pretty frightening. So just be aware of the fact that you are accountable for the light that you've received. And we have received very much light. You're accountable for the word of God that you have heard, proclaimed now, as we, as we get into verse 3, this is where things really start to get a little bit uh, tricky to follow. He says this in verse 3, For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, now he's going to point us back to something Psalm 95 says, as I've sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Now, um, I'm, I'm reading and working from the King James here, and a strange thing happens in the King James um, at this point, because back in chapter 3, when he first quoted Psalm 95, he quoted it uh, the way it actually reads. If you go back and look it up, he quoted it, I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. But now here, when he's referring back to that statement, he says, if they shall enter into my rest. In the King James, that's what it says, if they shall enter into my rest. So Psalm 95 says, they shall not enter my rest. But then when he quotes it, here in chapter four, he says, if they shall enter into my rest. And so you might have the question, if you've got a King James, you might be asking, why is he quoting it differently? That's a little strange. And the answer is that the words, if they shall, are actually a very literal translation of the of the Greek. That was a Greek expression uh, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to, uh, to us as English speakers, but it's basically just a strong way of saying, they shall never. Um, so he's... he's basically kind of just paraphrasing the verse and he's paraphrasing it with an expression that literally translates to if they shall but what he's actually saying is they shall never Um, and so most modern translations are going to go ahead and just translate it in a way that makes it more clear what's being said here um, that it's saying they shall never enter into God's rest so if you've got a modern translation you're probably wondering what I'm even talking about right now Um, but that's okay, don't worry about it, it's just a KJV thing. But the point of this first part of verse 3 is actually a very simple one. If it was to unbelievers that God said, they shall never enter into my rest. If it was unbelievers that God said that to, uh, then it must be that we can infer that it's believers who do. It's Believers who do enter God's rest. Now the rest of verse 3 and then into verse 4 as well. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, for he, that is the Holy Spirit, spake, the Holy Spirit spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, or in this way. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2, and now verse 5. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, or... They shall never enter into my rest. So he's gone. He's he, he's gone from Genesis two and back to Psalm ninety five, and he's com- and he's comparing God's rest in Genesis chapter two with the rest that God calls His people to enter into in Psalm ninety five and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. So um, let me just go ahead. I don't want to get really bogged down in in, in detail. So let me let me let me read verses six, seven, and eight and uh, then I'll try to summarize in, in kind of a simpler way, hopefully a, simple, a simpler way, uh, everything that, that the writer has, uh, has said. So let's look at verse 6 together. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, verse 7, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Verse 8, for if Jesus had given them rest, and I said a minute ago that the the name Jesus in this verse is actually referring to Joshua, and that may seem really weird. Uh, Modern translations will go ahead and say Joshua, but the King James says Jesus here. And and it's because Jesus is actually the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Uh, Jesus and Joshua had the same name, basically, just different uh, languages. Um. So, uh, so Joshua is the one that's actually being referred to. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, let me try to summarize or, or, or paraphrase uh, the, the, whole, the whole argument that, that he made there. Um, it would go something like this if we were to state it in a simpler way. We see that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from all of the work that he did in creating the world. Okay, Six days, God created the world. On the seventh day, he rested. And then, years after that, um, Moses said to the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy that God was bringing the people into his rest. So he's following this rest theme that keeps showing up throughout the Bible. Um, And so Moses said to the people that God was bringing the people... Uh, into his rest. And then whenever Joshua took Moses' place, Joshua reminded the people again that God had promised to bring them into his rest. And then, years after that, David wrote Psalm 95, where where he said to the people, today, in David's own day, he said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like the unbelieving children of Israel did. Don't be like those people that God said would never enter his rest be the people who do enter into God's rest. That was David's point. So Psalm 95 is again calling people to enter into God's rest. So the writer of Hebrews takes all of these observations, all of these things that he notices about God's rest in the Old Testament and how God constantly calls his people into his rest. And he concludes with verse 9. And verse 9 says this, "...there remaineth therefore a rest." To the people of God, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. If you don't remember anything about what the writer said in verses three through eight, and the reasoning and the, the the way he got to this conclusion, at least remember the conclusion that he comes to, which is there remains a rest for the people of God. God's rest is something that every generation of human beings is called into. God's rest is an ongoing thing. It's not something that ended after the seventh day of creation. And so, that means that the promise of of entering God's rest still stands today. In verse 10, For he that is entered into his, that is God's, into God's rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Verse 11, Let us, therefore, labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So all of that reasoning that the writer of Hebrews had done from Old Testament passages, it was all for the purpose of being able to exhort his readers in his day by saying, let us therefore strive to enter into God's rest. So this wasn't just for people in the Old Testament who are long dead by this point, this is for us. And so Now, almost 2,000 years later, after the book of Hebrews was penned, I'm saying to you, my listeners, let us strive to enter into God's rest because there remains a rest for the people of God. Now, as much as we have been talking about God's rest, what exactly is it? What what does God's rest mean? mean Um, is God's rest something that we experience right now in the here and now in our lives as we as we come to faith in Christ and as we're saved or is God's rest something that's still in the future and I really do think that the answer is both Uh, it is both God's rest is something that we presently into enter into and it's and it's something that we will enter into uh, most fully in the future there's a sense in which God's rest is still on its way But there's another sense in which it's already here, and we already experience it. Uh, Think about the way that Jesus sometimes talked about the kingdom of God, or or the kingdom of heaven. He often said things like, a time is coming and is now here. A time is coming and is now here. He says that several times. A time is coming, that's future, and it is now here. So it's present. The, the, people call that the already, not yet aspects of the Christian faith and salvation. The already and not yet. And then we read things like in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Wow. Paul can say that, because even though we're not yet physically there in the heavenly realms, we are as good as there. We are as good as there. So in one sense, we are already there. But in another sense, we're not quite there yet. And I think that God's rest works in a similar way. As we come to faith in Jesus and we, we trust in His finished work, we enter into God's rest in the here and now. And we experience a measure of that rest in our lives here and now, um, but at the same time we recognize that we're not yet experiencing God's rest in the fullest sense that 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 fullest sense of God's rest is something that we will experience when we finally see him face to face and are with him in heaven eternally now as I, I work my way into the into the application section of this um, sermon I'd this is actually a, a thought that was inspired by a sermon that I listened to um, by Al Mohler, um, that and he made he made this point that there are some verses in the Bible that are uh, that are particularly memorable uh, because they give us a short and simple summary of the gospel. It's like it's like the gospel itself is jam packed right there in one verse. It's like it's it's like a it encapsulates the gospel message. Uh, there are a number of verses that do that throughout the Bible. John three sixteen, of course. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel into one, right there in one verse. And so verses like this are very useful to us in, in, in evangelism and things like that when we're, when we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I think about 1 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel in one verse. But I can think of um, another verse. I think, I think one of the verses that, that we, we might could add to that list of single verses that sort of summarize the message of the gospel in one verse, uh, might very well be verse 10 of this fourth chapter of Hebrews, which says, He that has entered into God's rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. He that has entered into God's rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. I think that's a pretty good summary of what the gospel is all about. The gospel's not about impressing God with all of the good things you can do in the hopes that those good works are going to make your salvation secure. That's not what the gospel's about. God doesn't call you to earn entrance into his rest by doing good works, he calls you to come to him through his son Jesus. With an empty hand of faith. With an empty hand of faith. We're not saying that a Christian shouldn't do good works in keeping with repentance, as Paul said in Acts. Of course, our lives as Christians should be filled with good works. But the point that we're saying is that those works are not how we gain entrance into God's rest. We gain entrance by faith and by faith alone. And the works that we do are just a product of the new hearts that we've been given. we got new hearts now that desire new things. We have a heart that's grateful for what God's done for us. We have a heart that wants to please Him in the way that we live before Him every day of our lives. As I think about this this relationship between uh, the faith that saves us and the works that naturally flow out of that faith, that saves us, I can't help but be reminded about the the story of Martin Luther. So Martin Luther was the the German monk who sparked the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And uh, if you read anything about Luther, one of the things that just comes up over and over again is how he was a very restless individual. Martin Luther was a very restless individual. Individual. And what I mean is he had a keen sense of his own sinfulness, of his own unworthiness before God. He was very sensitive to his sin. He would spend hours in the confession booth confessing his sins to a priest and to, or, or, or to another uh, friend of his. Um, and then when he, would get, when he would finally get done confessing, he would go to leave, but then he would have to turn around and come back because there were a couple of sins he forgot to confess. And he, didn't, he really didn't want to leave those sins unconfessed. So he had to go back and confess them. And eventually it got to, got to the point where one of Luther's friends basically told him to go out and commit a real sin and then come back and confess. Good grief, you're in here confessing all these little tiny things and you're just exasperating us. Um, so that was the kind of restless individual that, that Luther was. He was just one of, those, one of those types that had a very keen sense of his own sin. And he knew very well that he, in himself, did not measure up to God's standard. He knew that very well. And I think probably a lot of us could get a, could get a dose of that kind of thing. We need to realize and know that we, in ourselves, do not measure up to God's standard. So before Luther came to understand the gospel, he's a very restless individual. And there's a famous episode in, in Luther's life where he had an opportunity to visit the city of Rome. And he was very excited about this trip because Rome was the capital city of, of Roman Catholicism. And uh, Luther was a, was a devout Roman Catholic at this point in his life. And so he was very excited to go to Rome to get to see the holy city. But what he ended up seeing in Rome shocked him and would actually set him on a trajectory that would end up just turning his life upside down completely. Um, Because what he saw in Rome was, all he saw was outward displays of religiosity. Yeah, people went to church. Yeah, people did their ceremonies, but these were just rituals that people did. They didn't seem to come from a heart that actually loved the Lord. They didn't seem to come from a heart of faith. And so he was very disenchanted in a way with the things he saw. The priests themselves were very immoral. Church officials lived basically godless lives. Holding an office in the church was more or less the same as just holding a political office. I mean, it really didn't mean that you were necessarily a very holy person. Uh, there was a thing called indulgences where you, uh, where you could, it was basically a certificate that you could work for or do some, do some kind of good work for or, or even pay for. And the idea was that if you got one of these indulgences, it would cut down on the time that you spent in purgatory. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, purgatory is not hell, but it is a fiery place that believers go to after they die in order to be uh, purged from any remaining sins that they have before they get to go to heaven. you got to go through purgatory first. And so, um, and so these indulgences, these certificates that people would, would buy were, were said to cut down on the time you spent in purgatory. So that's, that's another thing Luther saw in Rome. And, but one of the most memorable things that Luther saw there was a giant staircase and it was said uh, that this, this was the staircase that came from the house of Pilate. And that it was said that it was moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And so it was uh, believed that these were the steps that Jesus himself would have walked up um, during, his, during his trial before Pilate. And so the people in Rome were told that if they climbed this staircase on their hands and knees... And said, and said the right prayers as they went, that they would earn an indulgence that would take years off of purgatory for them. And I didn't track down this, this story in Luther's own words, but the, the story goes that Luther decided to make this ascent up the staircase. He decided to give it a shot. And so here he was, crawling on his hands and knees, saying all the right prayers, Uh, kissing every stair as he went, giving it all he had, when all of a sudden he just was struck with this thought of, who knows whether this is even true? And he looked down behind him, and he was just so disenchanted with the whole thing. Who knows whether this was true? And so he stood up and just walked back down the stairs, not feeling any better about himself, not feeling any better about his security, his salvation. And in the midst of all of this works righteousness that Martin Luther was was around and was seeing in the city of Rome, it was a verse that constantly came to his mind, and it was a verse that would eventually become his life verse. Romans 1, 17, where Paul is quoting from Habakkuk 2, 4, the just shall live by faith. The just, in other words, the righteous, shall live by faith. And Martin Luther started to get a hold of the gospel in a powerful way. And he started to understand that uh, what Paul meant when he said in Romans 3.28, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He's justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that is where Luther was finally able to find his Rest. Amen. The restless Luther found rest in the gospel. Because he started to understand that the gospel isn't about works that we do. The gospel is not about works that we do. It's about the work that God has done That's right. through his son for everyone who believes. The gospel is not about works that you do. The gospel is about the work that God has done through his son. For everyone who believes in Him, and it comes to Him with the empty hand of faith. It's interesting to me that whenever human beings uh, come up with their own religions, uh, it's always, all, it's almost always going to be a works-based religion. They'll teach you that the way to get to God is to do a bunch of works, do things that impress Him, do all that you can to earn your righteousness. In his sight. That's the kind of of religion that man tends to come up with, a works based religion. But that is altogether different than the religion that God came up with, so to speak. That's altogether different than the gospel. Because the gospel is not about you showcasing your worthiness to God. Look at me, God. Look at all the good things that I've done. Surely you'll save me now because of these things, right? That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about you showcasing your worthiness to God. The gospel is about God showcasing His grace and mercy to you. That's what the gospel is about. God is the one who says, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at my works. Look at the work of my Son. And this is, this is one of the things, this, the gospel of free grace. This is one of the things that, that makes the Christian faith so unique, because it's not the kind of thing that, that it's not the kind of religion that human beings would come up with. This is one of the points that C.S. Lewis made in his, uh, his famous book, "Mere Christianity." C.S. Lewis said this: "Reality is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is, a rele- it is a religion that you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that queer twist about it that real things have. That's what C.S. Lewis said. Human beings seem to have a natural tendency to think that if there is any way that we are going to be made right with God, surely it's going to involve work. Surely we are going to have to work for it. Surely we've got to earn it. But the gospel turns out to be something that human beings wouldn't naturally expect. Because the gospel tells us this is not what God's requiring of you. That is not what God's requiring of you. He is not requiring you to take on a heavy load of backbreaking rules and regulations. He's not calling you to prove your righteousness to Him by your good works before you come to Him. That's not the way it works. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you more work to do. I would I, More work to do so that you can prove your, your worthiness to me? No, of course not. That's not what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. There is rest in Jesus. There is rest in knowing, like I said earlier, that Jesus has conquered death. And so that there's nothing, there's nothing to fear anymore about death. You don't have to be afraid of death anymore because of his death. He has conquered death. There is rest in knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future, your sins have been forgiven. There's an old hymn that says this. Well may the accuser roar. Talking about the devil, the accuser, who throws accusations our way all the time. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all. And thousands more, Jehovah knoweth none. That is forgiveness. That is having your slate wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. That is forgiveness of sins that is offered to you in Christ. That is rest. That is rest that you can have in Jesus. I know my own junk. I know my own sin, and I hope I've still got you all fooled. But I know my own sin and my own unworthiness. And I know how little I deserve God's grace. And so there is major rest, wonderful and sweet rest, in knowing that every one of my sins have been forgiven in Christ and wiped away. There's rest in that. There's rest in knowing that your salvation does not depend upon the works that you do. If that were the case, I can assure you we would all be in big trouble if that's the way that salvation works. It's not. So if you're here tonight and you've been trying to fill up your life with good works so that you'll feel better about whether or not God has accepted you, please abandon that way of thinking. You're never going to find rest that way. God doesn't call you to that. God calls you to find rest in the finished work of his son. That's what I have for you tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, if there was any inadequacy in the way that I delivered it, I pray that.